Do you know how many words you speak on a given day? Uh, Research gives us an answer, a fairly reliable answer, that the average adult speaks about 16,000 words a day. That's probably more than you thought. Uh, And it's interesting also that the number is not that different between women and men. I would have assumed that it would be a pretty significant difference, but women and men speak fairly close to the same number, about 16,000 words a day. The point is, of course, that we use a lot of words, probably more than we realize. But then the question becomes, okay, how are we using our words? What kind of words are we using? Y'all, we've been walking through the book of James, and he is laser-focused on almost every chapter on the issue of our words, of our speech. If you go back to chapter 1, James talks about our need to be quick to hear and slow to speak. Don't speak in a way that is careless or impulsive or unloving. Then in chapter 2, James talks about don't be a hypocrite who says spiritual things but doesn't follow it up with spiritual behavior. Then in chapter 3 is when he really pushes the button on the tongue. He talks about the tongue as a flame that can set on fire the entire course of your life. It can ruin everything. The tongue has that kind of power. Our words are not a small issue. Not for James and certainly not from our own experience. I know you can attest to that. But right here at the, at the conclusion of his letter, James lovingly points us to the most important use of our speech that there is. The most important kinds of words there are. He calls us to prayer. He calls us to prayer. Y'all, I, I hesitate to even guess how many of my 16,000 words are actually devoted to prayer. Uh, Whatever the number is, I know it's not enough, and, and probably for you too. Most of us would acknowledge we don't pray enough. We don't pray as we should. But, but my hope is that the Lord will speak to us through his word today a great encouragement, an encouragement. We can beat ourselves up, of course, but I want us to be encouraged today because we have a God who delights to speak to us. He's given us his word, and he speaks to us abundantly. And we also, of course, have a God who delights to be spoken to, a God who delights to relate to us in prayer, to engage with us. He's a God who is close and who cares. And so there is a certain kind of prayer that you might call therapeutic, where it's just me relating to God Um, That is absolutely good and right and necessary. But James wants to go even beyond that today. James wants to show us that prayer is actually powerful and effective and purposeful. It's good for relationship. We just speak to God. That's wonderful. But we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that prayer makes a difference. That's what James wants to show us. And so at the risk of being too general, the big key ideas that James gives us all throughout the book He keeps coming back to the issue of suffering and the issue of sin. In terms of the two biggest problems James addresses, suffering and sin. Well, right here, we're going to see how prayer covers both. And in fact, James is going to show us that prayer covers everything in life, both the bad and the good. So look with me at James chapter 5, verse 13. And he's going to give us some commands here. Scenarios followed up with directives. Verse 13, is anyone among you suffering, then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Now, this is James's way of saying 
that we should pray at all times in all circumstances. The Apostle Paul commanded us to pray without ceasing, to pray all the time, no matter what. And James gives us two what would seem to be very different scenarios, right? The first, are you suffering? Are you suffering? That's an intentionally broad word right there. Suffering can mean a lot of different things, and James means it to be broad. It could mean persecution. It could mean sickness or poverty or depression or failure, rejection, loneliness, grief. We could go on and on. Suffering has a big, broad meaning for James. But here's the point. If you are suffering, whatever it may be, you ought to pray. That person must pray. Well, pray for what? Um, We should certainly pray that God would deliver us from our suffering. Y'all, sometimes, and I don't know what this is about us or about me, sometimes we have this mentality that says, you know, other people are going through harder things than me. So I'm not going to bother God with my problems. He's got enough to deal with. Maybe you've said that, thought that, heard that before. As if God has some sort of limitation on the number of prayer requests he can receive in a given day. As if God is just put out with me if I come to him with something that's relatively small compared to the suffering that others are going through. Y'all, we've got to get over that. We should pray that God would deliver us from our suffering, whether it's great or small. There's nothing wrong with that. It's biblical. But we also see throughout the scripture that we are to pray not just for deliverance, but also for strength and mercy and grace to walk through suffering. Oftentimes when we're suffering, we don't see the purpose. We can't understand why, but God certainly has a purpose in our hardships And God will be with us in the midst of those things. David prayed that famous prayer, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me, God. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. David walked through the valley. Surely he wanted out of the valley, but in that moment, he knew that God was present and powerful. God was there with him in his suffering, and we should pray for that too. That's what part of James 5 is about. We looked at it a few weeks ago. God will deal mercifully with you as you patiently endure hardship. So pray that God will deliver in your suffering, yes, but pray also that he'll strengthen you in the midst of it. He's glad to do it. Now, I don't, usually we don't need to really um, command a lot of prayer in the midst of suffering. This is the time when we pray most, usually, is when things get hard. That's an easy command for most of us to follow. Life is hard, we pray. But then that's also what makes the second half of verse 13 interesting, is that James turns a little corner there. He says, is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Now, James does not mean to say that you're only cheerful if you're not suffering, as if those two things are totally separate. You can be suffering and still have great joy and cheer in your heart, of course. But the point is that regardless of outward circumstances, whether bad or good, if God has put cheer in your heart, if God has given you anything to be grateful for, and he surely has, James says, sing God praises. That's a form of prayer, to sing God praises. That's one of the reasons we do it without fail every time we gather. We sing, not because we're so talented and God is so blessed to hear the beauty of our voices. That's not why we do it. We're not trying to impress each other. We sing out of gladness in worship because God has put cheer in our hearts. He's given us his son. We always have something to be thankful for. 
I don't know if you ever pray in the form of song, but you should. Again, even if you don't think you're all that good at it. Uh, Sometimes I just pray an old hymn or I'll pray through a psalm, which are written as songs, and that's the prayer. These aren't my own words. They're someone else's words, but we're singing, we're praying songs of praise because there's cheer in our heart. Uh, A cheerful heart is meant to spill over. That's what James is saying, right? Now, this may seem like common sense stuff. Verse 13, but y'all, there's a, there's a sneaky thing that goes on in the, in, in the human heart. Uh, take these two scenarios. There's suffering and there's cheer. Sometimes when we suffer, that suffering, that road of suffering may lead us to a place of bitterness and cynicism, and we won't pray. And we'll start to think, what good would it do if I prayed? It's not going to change anything. We stop praying, even though we need it. Or maybe we're cheerful, maybe things are going well, but we start to convince ourselves that we're doing just fine without God. I'm the reason things are going well. I'm the one putting forth the effort, right? Or it's just coincidence, right? Things are just good. And we we lose sight of the fact that God is the giver of every good gift and we don't praise him. See, this is a sneaky thing for Christians, not, not just for other people, right? For those who know and love God, we can find ourselves prayerless. And therefore, James gives us a command, a shot in the arm. No matter what's going on, good or bad, pray, he says, pray. Now, that's a pretty general command. Watch how James gets a little more specific here. Really interesting verse 14. He says, is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed any sins, they will be forgiven him. Um, The sickness that James has in mind right here is probably a significant ailment. Uh, He's probably not thinking about every little cough or paper cut that we come across in life. This is very likely, this is a person who is weakened and who requires special concern. That's why this person calls for the elders. He can't come to them himself because he's too weak. That's more than likely the case here. So in that case, what should you do? You're sick, you're ailing, what should you do? Call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Uh, Y'all, we we are an elder-led church here at Harvest Church because we believe that's the model and the command of the New Testament. Elders are the appointed leaders and shepherds, pastors, of the local church. So in our case here at Harvest, that's Jay Warren, Paul Meganson, and me. Uh, We have the honor and the responsibility to oversee the church. This is Titus 1, 1 Timothy 3, 1 Peter 5, Acts chapter 20, some really significant places in the Bible that talk about eldership. Okay, that's why we're here. Um, And part of that pastoral role is prayer for the sick, James says. And not only to pray over the sick person, but to anoint him or her with oil. Okay, now two quick points on this. Uh, I want you to know, and if you know Jay, Paul, and me, you already know this. But we elders have no magical powers. We elders have no special access to God that if I pray for you, then you'll get extra special blessing as opposed to if just somebody else prayed for you. There are sects of Christianity that believe that. We're not one of them, okay? 
The elders don't have magic powers or special God access. Now, we do hold a unique place within the church, a special place, as those who are called to shepherd and lead God's people. And a big part of that pastoring involves prayer. So it is significant. It's just not magic. Okay, well, what about the anointing oil? Surely there's some magic in that stuff, right? That's where maybe we get a little nervous if you didn't grow up in a tradition where anointing oil was used. I didn't grow up like that. Oh, there's actually some debate on this. What's the anointing oil all about? Um, there, there was, in Bible times, there was a, a way that olive oil was used that was medicinal, uh, that was actually used to help treat sicknesses. Uh, if you remember the great story Jesus shared of the, the, uh, the Good Samaritan, that this man discovers a beaten and bloodied man on the side of the road, he takes care of him. One of the ways he took care of him was he poured oil and wine on his wounds, Wine is an antiseptic to clean and oil to soften and purify. So there is a medicinal purpose, perhaps. And that's what James could be saying, that the elders need to kind of function in a, in a medicinal way, put oil on the wound. But I don't think that's really what he's saying. I think more likely the anointing with oil is a, it's a command to consecrate the sick person. Uh, it's a symbolic act that expresses God's unique care and concern for this helpless person. And so the oil is uh, symbolic in that sense. It, it signifies that this sick Christian is being set apart specially for God's grace and healing. Now, that's what I think that that verse means. It could be medicinal. Uh, many, many smart men believe that may be true. Uh, I think it's more symbolic. That's just my understanding. Well, whatever it is, we take the command to heart that we ought to pray and anoint with oil, but we have to be very sincere in our understanding. There's no magic in all of that. Not in the ones who pray, the elders, not in the oil that's applied. That's not where the magic is. That's not how the healing comes. If healing comes to the sick person, it comes only from God. It comes from the hand of God. God is the healer. That's the ultimate point. But you notice the assurance in verse 15. I don't want to skip over this. Verse 15, And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed any sins, they will be forgiven him. Now this is the prayer in faith is the elder's prayer. As the elders pray in faith, the sick person will be restored, and the Lord will raise him up. James expresses confidence in the healing power of God. And so should we. The Lord can and does heal. Many of us have seen it happen. Some of us in this room have been healed. And you can testify to it. Now, I want to be really careful here. I, this is a hard place for me as a pastor. I don't want to, um, to, to put my, all of my own interpretation into this. But I do want to try to be faithful to what I think the whole of Scripture dictates. Is James giving us an ironclad promise that if the right people pray in the right way, healing will always result? Is that what he's saying? And the answer is no. And I'm a firm believer that that's not what James is trying to communicate. He's communicating confidence and faith, but he's not giving us a formula right here that's guaranteed. Because all throughout the scripture, not just our own experience, but in the scripture, we see people getting sick in scripture that don't get healed, that we have no record of healing. The apostle Paul tells us in Galatians 
that he had a besetting bodily illness, something really significant, and we have no record of of Paul being healed. Timothy, Paul tells us that Timothy had frequent ailments, lots of stomach issues, and we have no record of his healing. Um, And I know this, or probably in your own experience, you've prayed for somebody to get well, and they didn't. Maybe they even got worse. Maybe they even passed away. So let me give you some important points, really just two important points. I think we need to understand when we look at what James is calling us to do here. And the first is, foremost, we ought to pray in faith with an expectation of God's healing. We ought to pray in faith with an expectation that God will heal. Don't be a faithless, cynical person who looks at a bad situation and says, well, what's the, what's the use of even praying for that at all? That is cynical. That's faithless talk. Will God heal that person here and now? I don't know. We don't, we're not always privy to the uh, immediate will of God. We know that there is ultimate healing for those in Christ, of course, for all of us. Eternal healing, yes. Will it happen physically in the here and now? We don't know, but shame on us if we don't pray in faith that he will. Y'all, earlier this year... Um, some friends of ours had a really sick baby. They live in a different city. And so we followed the updates primarily on Facebook. And frankly, it looked pretty dire. And Jennifer and I were praying, but the, the, the cynic inside of me just kept thinking all the while how awful it's going to be when this poor baby dies. Uh, today, that precious child is completely healthy. No medical explanation. An answer to prayer. Praise God for his healing grace, right? And shame on me for my half-hearted prayers. Shame on me for not trusting and believing that God could do it. And y'all, I know part of why I'm like this, maybe you're like this a little bit too. You know, I don't want to get my hopes up. I don't want to pray, you know, and get all excited and ask, ask too much of God and then end up disappointed. Right? Nobody wants that. Or maybe, I, you know, I don't really expect that God's going to heal, and so I don't even ask for it because, you know, I don't want God to look bad. Can I just say, you know, I'm, I'm bad about this. God can take care of his own reputation. God does not need me to lower the bar for him just in case it doesn't all work out. That way he doesn't look bad. God can be God all by himself. He doesn't need my help. James says, pray in faith that God will do it and trust him with the outcome. Trust him with the outcome that all of his ultimate purposes are good. But there's a second thing that we've got to take to heart when we pray like this. It's at the end of verse 15. Notice this, very interesting. James says, And if he, the sick man, if the sick man has committed any sins, they will be forgiven him. James's concern is not purely with physical healing. He's also concerned with spiritual healing. And the truth is that second issue is really more important than the first. Y'all, here's the truth. Even if God does heal a person physically in time and space, that person will die still eventually. Nobody goes on being healed forever. We all die. And so what do we need above all things? What do we need even more than physical healing? We need 
Forgiveness of sins. That's our ultimate need, our greatest one. We see that there's a, there's a, a wonderful story, one of my favorite stories from the Gospels, probably yours too, of a man whose friends lower him down through a roof to lay him down at the feet of Jesus. This was a paralyzed man, absolutely helpless, couldn't do anything for himself, but he's got these faithful friends who make a way. They put him down at Jesus' feet because they know that there's only one person in this world that can heal our friend, and it's Jesus. And of course, Jesus does heal him. But before he raises this man up on his feet, Jesus says something to him. He says, friend, your sins are forgiven you. That's not why the man came. That's not what anybody in that room expected Jesus to say, but that's what the man needed. Above and beyond physical healing, important as the physical healing was, he needed forgiveness. In fact, Jesus says it in that story, that the physical healing is really a sign pointing to the greater healing that God came to accomplish through his Son. The healing of the soul, the forgiveness of sins, the salvation of the whole person. And see, this is our ultimate concern here. We pray for physical healing, but greater even than that, we're concerned for the soul. This goes beyond just the elders, by the way. You look at verse 16. James's um, follow-up here with this idea. He says, therefore, talking to us, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So you notice James is not just talking to the elders anymore, not just the elders' prayer. He's talking to the whole church. And there's more in view than just physical healing. I think that's obvious. It's not just physical now. It's, it's beyond. It's the whole person. James says to us, confess your sins to one another. That is one of the most uncomfortable commands in the whole scripture, I'm sure. That's right. It makes us uncomfortable. For one, we're ashamed of our sins. I don't want anybody to know about my sins. I'm ashamed that I even do them in the first place of the things that are in my heart and the things that I do. I don't want people to know. I'm ashamed. But then we also have this mentality, maybe it's because we're Americans, that says, listen, my sins are nobody's business but my own. And if I'm going to confess them, then I'm going to get alone and confess them to God. I don't, I don't need anybody else to know about that. That's not their business. But see, for James, listen, this, there's a bigger picture going on that the church, think about the church, we are the family of God. We are the household of God, children of God, and brothers and sisters one to another. And what that means is, as a family, listen, if, if something happens in your family, in your home, everybody's affected. If a child gets sick, everybody's affected. That doesn't happen in a vacuum. If something good happens, everybody rejoices and celebrates. That's what a family does. Now, when James talks about a family, the family of God, this is meant to be our reality, that if I suffer, then we all pray about it. That's the way it's meant to be. If I'm rejoicing, we're all meant to rejoice along with me. Right? Romans 12. Uh, if I sin, we're all affected, even if only indirectly. We're all affected. And so when James says... Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. We're being given a divine privilege 
This is not an imposition. I don't want anybody in my business. No, y'all, this is a privilege we're being given. We get to pray for each other. We get to help each other along the way of sanctification, of growing to be more like Christ, to confess our sins. And where we've sinned against others in the church, then they get to forgive us and we get to forgive them. It's a wonderful thing. It purifies. We get to encourage each other and point each other to Jesus. Y'all, this is something we get to do, not something we have to do. It's a privilege. And when the church lives this way, and this is radical, by the way, when the church actually does this, God is delighted and God acts. God acts. He acts graciously and he acts favorably upon his church. That's why we're told the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Now, what does that mean? I've always struggled with that. It can be a a, a tremendous guilt passage that if my prayers aren't being answered, it might be because I'm just not righteous enough, right? Um, James is actually reaching back here. He often does this. He goes back to the Old Testament, to the book of 1 Kings. He's going to illustrate what he means using Elijah the prophet. We see it in verse 17. Look at this. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly, fervently, that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. So Elijah the prophet prays for drought, 1 Kings. Um, Why does he pray that prayer? Is 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 that a kind of on a whim, just something he came up with? No. He prays for drought because Israel had rejected God. They had gone after Baal and idol worship. And so Elijah's prayer was not his own concoction. It was in accord with the will of God in bringing discipline and punishment upon the sinful nation of Israel. And then when the time came, Elijah prayed again that it would rain, and it rained. It came, and the ground bore its fruit again. Now that sounds pretty effective. We're talking about prayer. That's powerful prayer, isn't it? And that's where we might get tripped up all over again. Man, I'm nothing like that. I can't do that. But why does James bring up this story? James tells us why. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. So now why would James tell us that? He's trying to make a a, a significant point right there that Elijah was not some super spiritual divine being that we can't live up to. He says, no, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Elijah was a sinner like you and me. He was a man. But he was also a faithful and obedient and fervent man when it came to prayer. He pursued God in righteousness and prayed like it. And God acted in accordance with Elijah's prayer. Not because Elijah was super spiritual and had earned access but because he prayed diligently and righteously according to the will of God. And that's why these words are meant to encourage us. The, 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 right, the, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Now, you may not really believe that because you've prayed and you didn't get the answer you wanted. Or, or maybe you believe it in theory, but you think, I'm not the kind of person who gets his prayers, her prayers really answered like that. It's nice to see it in the scripture But that's not my experience. And it's just, frankly, it's just hard to believe that my prayers can be effective and can accomplish much. Well, y'all, I want to close then with some encouragement, some good news. Uh, Our prayers 
just as they are, don't actually accomplish anything. They're just words. It's the one to whom we are praying. That's where the power is. That's where the strength lies. That's where the effectiveness comes from. God is the all-powerful Father who acts, who works on behalf of his children. That's what this is all about. And that's why we can pray for anything at any time. Because we're children coming to a Father who loves us. You notice what James has commanded us today? He says, listen, pray when you suffer and pray when you're cheerful. Pray when you're sick. Pray when you're in sin. Pray for yourself. Pray for each other. He's trying to cover all the bases here for us. Pray anytime about anything. And what's the common denominator in all of those prayers? It's the God who hears and the God who answers. That's the common denominator. It's the one to whom we pray. And y'all, we do have special access to God in this. We do have special access to God. Not because we've earned it. Not because in our righteousness we've deserved it. But our access to God is a grace that we've been given. It's a gift. Now, one of my favorite verses to share comes from Romans chapter 8 in verse 32. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. God, who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with Christ freely give us all things? Think about what's being said right there. God, who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up to death for us. If God has done that, if God has sent Jesus Christ into the world to save sinners, to forgive us our sins, to declare us righteous in his eyes, that's what he's done. A gift that we receive by faith. If God has not spared Jesus from dying so that we might have that kind of access, that kind of relationship... What Paul is saying is this, well then how much more will God freely give us all of his blessings, all of his promises in Christ? If God did not withhold the most precious thing, then why are we so concerned that he won't give us the lesser things? Jesus came to die for you, that you might be righteous before God. And therefore, you can pray effectively, and your prayers can accomplish much, because God esteems you in the way that he esteems Christ as righteous and pure, the son or daughter of the Most High. That's who you are. If he didn't spare Jesus, then then don't we know that when we pray, he draws near and he hears us? That's a small thing by comparison. See, y'all, my children, Mason and Caleb, they have no problem asking me for audacious things. They they ask me for whatever comes to mind, whatever they want. And generally, they trust that I can actually deliver. They don't know any better yet. They think that I can probably give them whatever they ask for. And y'all, listen, they don't ask me for these things because they know and understand my will. They don't always know what my answer is going to be. They don't always know what I've got in mind. They can't see from my perspective. And so a lot of the things they ask for are bad things or things that aren't right or good, right? They don't always understand my will, but they know me. They know their dad. They know I love them. And therefore, they're not afraid to ask me. 
Y'all, how much more should we pray in faith to a father who has proven his love once and for all through the sending of his son, Jesus, for the forgiveness of our sins, the gift of his son? Why would we think he would withhold any lesser gift now when he's given us everything? So may we be a people who pray. Not because we feel guilty and we need to pray more. I hope you don't take this away today. But we get to do this. We get to pray with God. For, we get to pray to God because we've been given access through Christ. We get to pray with and for each other because he's made us a family. And we get to pray with faithfulness, with confidence, and with good cheer because we're praying to a father who has proven his love both now and forever. Let's pray. Father God, give us grace this morning not to pray half-hearted prayers, but to pray like we really believe that Jesus Christ is our Savior. And therefore, there is nothing, Lord, good that you will ever withhold from us. You have not withheld your own Son. Give Give us a confidence, a love, a joy that knows no bounds because we see what we've been given And Lord, we delight to respond. Make us a people of prayer. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.